American United has a convenient branch right at the VA Medical Center, along with eight other locations across Utah. As a member, our veterans get the best rates on loans and savings products. Learn more at amucu.org. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Hi, I'm Jess Larson. This is Ideation Collective. Today we've got Chip Huth, commander at Kansas City, Missouri Police Department, and former team leader for the Street Crimes Unit Tactical Enforcement Team. It came down to what I consider to be a, kind of almost a false dichotomy that's been created uh, in, in the law enforcement culture. Uh, we tend to uh, assume that we uh, have to choose between two options, either being respectful and regarding of people, Uh, or being safe. And at some point in the law enforcement culture, uh, those two ideas uh, became, basically became known as as independent of each other. Like, you know, you can either be safe uh, or you can be respectful and you can't be both. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. If you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations, but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founders started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Chip, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure, Jess. Thanks for having me. So uh, for, for people who don't know what it means to be a team leader for a tactical enforcement team, um, can you give us a bit more of a, a vision of what that entitled for the last 10 sure. years for you? Oh, absolutely. So within our police department, we have 60 full-time SWAT members. And of those 60, uh, 14 are dedicated to what we call a tactical enforcement team. Uh, the, the, remaining, the remaining officers are detailed out to tactical response teams. And their job duties entail, uh, you know, the conventional SWAT-type uh, taskings. Uh, they do surround and call-outs uh, on barricaded parties, hostage rescue, VIP protection, uh, that type of stuff, along with some search warrant service. The tactical enforcement team, the team that, uh, that I uh, had the opportunity to lead for uh, a decade, is tasked primarily in three areas. One is high-risk search warrant service. Uh, the other is fugitive apprehension, or the second one is fugitive apprehension uh, for violent felons. And then the third would be uh, high-risk surveillance, so tactical overwatch on, on high-risk operations. And, and, and so it's a very narrow skill set in comparison to the other SWAT team, uh, the other SWAT teams which, whose duties are more broad. So it, it's almost like a, a specialized 
uh, SWAT team, if you will, a more narrow focus. And uh, most of our work was in support of uh, either the drug units or the career criminal units or robbery units, that type of thing. Uh, a lot of different type, different work that we would do uh, outside of what you would conventionally think that the SWAT teams were doing. And it wasn't unusual for me. As a matter of fact, almost all the the officers I recruited, I recruited from the uh, from the other SWAT teams, the TRT teams, uh, because they were already trained up uh, at the, at the basic level. And then I was able to take them uh, take them in, and and we could develop that specialized training they needed to function effectively in our team. So, um, for for people who don't necessarily know those definitions, how does something get classified high risk? Is it does that have to do with anticipation of them being armed? What 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 makes the leap from a search warrant over to a high risk search warrant, for instance? Certainly. So it would be any. It's articulable evidence. We have kind of a an informal matrix we use to evaluate these things. Now, some SWAT teams will use a, a rather formalized matrix. Uh, we do it kind of informally uh, using. Uh, Using the standards laid out by the law, uh, we look for things that would, would would lead a reasonable officer to believe that there's a heightened sense of jeopardy about this operation. So uh, common things, and, and probably the most common thing for us was the presence of armed and violent people uh, at the search warrant location. Uh, if there was a higher potential for destruction of evidence in combination with that, that, that made, the, uh, made the case even stronger. Uh, also, location. There's certain... Uh, places that we try to go into to execute a search warrant uh, that we just simply couldn't breach with conventional means. We just wouldn't be able to, to get past the door. It'd be reinforced in that type of situation when patrol officers don't have the training or equipment to overcome those type of obstacles. So they would call in our team and we'd be able to go in and, and employ our specialized training and our specialized equipment to, uh, to overcome that, that obstacle. Um, but, but probably the, the primary thing that you think about when you think about high risk is that the potential for violence is there. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is the potential for violence is there every day for every law enforcement officer in every call. Uh, but, but, you don't all, but you can't approach it that way. Like, I, you know, I, your officer on the street can't stop someone from running a stop sign and then, uh, you know, go guns up on them and order them to the ground, uh, you know, just to write them a ticket. Now, that person they stopped very well have just very well might have just left a murder like the officer has no way of knowing, but they can't approach it based on what may have happened. They have to approach it based on what's most likely or what's what's most probable. Uh, so, so we would consider those things to be like unknown risk. Uh, with a, In the high-risk domain, we would have articulable reasons. We would be able to point to facts and circumstances that would lead us to believe that the potential for violence was there at a higher level. And if we could articulate that, uh, then we would pull our team in and we would run the execution. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's what, so when we say high risk, we're talking about law enforcement is certainly a dangerous job. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And what makes it dangerous oftentimes is just the unknown, you know, the ambiguity. Uh, you may be thinking you're walking into one thing, uh, but, but you may walk into something totally different. And you don't have the luxury of just assuming that the information that you've uh, received in route to the call uh, or in route to the operation is 100% accurate. You know, you're relying on people who uh, are trying to put information out to you, uh, and they're not usually uh, typically in their best frame of mind. You know, they're, they're experiencing a situation that's very challenging, and they're doing the best they can to get the information out to you, uh, but it's not always accurate. 
And so, you know, law enforcement in general is dangerous. I think everyone knows that. But then when you, uh, when you have high-risk clients, like the kind that we dealt with, people who have a proven track record of violence and who are committed uh, many times, very committed to not going back to prison, uh, now, now you're talking about an exponentially more dangerous situation if it were approached uh, by officers who weren't specially trained to handle that type of client. Sure. Well, and, and there's something you just said that I think is a good start off for, for the questions we typically ask people. You know, um, we're, we're, we're asking these different people who have achieved something that's uncommon, kind of their insights about innovation, marketing, leadership. And uh, I feel like, you know, in the last few years that you and I have been hanging out, something that I feel like you have really led the charge as far as innovation uh, for SWAT team, at least compared to what the, the public psyche about what you guys do is, is a little bit summed up in the last word you just said when you when you called these guys a client. You know, um, I'm thinking about your book uh, that you wrote with our good friend, uh, Jack Caldwell, Unleashing the Power of Unconditional Respect. Can we just start right there? Why, why did you and Jack decide on that title? Well, you know, it really it, it came down to what I consider to be a, kind of almost a false dichotomy that's been created uh, in, in the law enforcement culture. Uh, we tend to uh, assume that we uh, have to choose between two options, either being respectful and regarding of people uh, or being safe. And at some point in the law enforcement culture, uh, those two ideas – uh, became no, or basically became known as in, as independent of each other. Like you know, you can either be safe uh, or you can be respectful, and you can't be both. And, and so, as Jack and I were talking about this, based on our experience, what we've learned, and, and listen, full disclosure, what I learned doing it wrong for a, quite a while. Like as in, I've made every mistake that I. <laughs> uh, oh no, absolutely every one of them. Uh, and and I, 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 I perfected the mistakes. I mean, I, I, I made them in ways people couldn't even think of. You know, this, is, this was definitely a trial by fire thing. But Jack and I got to talking about this idea that, look, in our experience, not only does being respectful uh, make you more likely to get cooperation, but it actually makes you safer. Like there's, so there's brain science around this. There's psychology around this. There's all kinds of support, uh, empirical and, and otherwise, that shows and demonstrates this, but we tend to ignore it based on our need to justify the things that we want to do. And we do that not only individually, but as a culture. And our culture has shifted toward this idea that in order to be uh, tough and capable, I must be perceived as tough and capable uh, by behaving in ways that people would colloquially associate uh, with uh, tough and capable. And, and that typically turns into the attitude of, look, my job is to clo uh, close distance and apply force. And, and, and that way, uh, in, in that demonstrative way, then I become, I become this person who's, who's safer. Uh, well, you know, nothing could be further from the truth, to be honest with you. Uh, there's all kinds of things that, uh, that contribute to conflict, uh, you know, physical and otherwise. But, but it, all starts with, it all starts with the sparks, you know, that are created in these relationships. You know, and how you are in relationship to others. And so we, we got to talking about the difference between trust and respect. And so trust, we feel, is something that needs to be earned uh, through uh, proven courageous conduct over time. It, uh, trust is very difficult to establish and easy to damage. And it's not something that we have the luxury of, uh, of just walking out. I can't just walk out into the street and say, well, I automatically trust this stranger I just met in an enforcement context. That would be foolish. However, 
Uh, however, many people tend to think trust and respect are synonymous, and uh, that's mm. not how we see it. Uh, we see, look, trust is something that has to be earned, absolutely. Respect is something I can give freely. Respect isn't about what you merit, uh, you know, you, the other person I'm interacting with. It's about, it's about my character. It's about who I am. It's about my ability to see things as they are uh, and to recognize your personhood and your uniqueness. So, and, uh, and, and can I jump in right there? Oh, please do. This, this title, Unconditional Respect. Tell me the different. Tell tell me why you added that extra word in the title. What is what is when you talk about respect versus unconditional respect? I mean, there's there's the you know obvious um, interpretation, but for you and Jack, what what how would you guys define unconditional respect? Oh, sure. Well, look, so so much of the respect that we see is conditional, uh, you know. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, I talk to people all uh, all the time, and I used to be one of these people who said, "Look, uh, you have to earn my respect." Mm. So like when we when we meet, then the, the the theory behind that would be when we meet, you start out kind of at a zero balance in the in the respect back, you know, meaning like I don't know you, therefore I don't have you have none of my respect. But but as I get to know you, you will earn respect points. <laughs> you know, that's kind of how we a lot of people approach it. I mean, and like literally, I've, like I trust. I was raised. I was raised with that concept of you have to earn my respect. Um, and, and so that, that, that places conditions on it. Uh, that brings in a lot of subjectivity, uh, which, as you know, can be dangerous, uh, whether it's business or police work. You know, uh, staying objective is the key. Now, what we mean by unconditional is this. I respect your personhood. I respect the fact that you are a person who has hopes, needs, fears, dreams, things you're trying to accomplish. Uh, that I know to be true of any person in the world. Now, some of those things you're trying to accomplish may, may not be uh, morally acceptable. It may not even be legal, uh, but they're still there. There's things, that are, there's things that are driving you, and that makes you a person. And so when I'm respecting your personhood, that's an unconditional respect I give to you. Just by the fact that you exist, you have that level of respect. Um, now, uh, also, when I'm respecting and regarding you as a person, uh, the, the, the ancillary benefit here, and it's not small, is that I also honor the fact that as a person, you're the most dangerous creature on the planet. Like I would never turn my back on a person because people are unpredictable. Where if I didn't respect you as a person, it might be easy to justify in my mind, uh, certainly on a subconscious level, I think that's been demonstrated, that you're not a threat. And I may do things that are counter to my safety. So the unconditional piece is just simply that. Look, by the, by, by, by the fact that you exist as a human being, I honor and respect your unique status among all other things in the world. I mean, unique status. Uh, and, and that's what we were trying to get across to officers. When you attach the, uh, the subjectivity uh, piece to it, when you attach all these, these requirements that you make up in your mind, uh, you know, boy, that gets cloudy. It's like, you know... Uh, it almost becomes like, you know, uh, the people that I respect in that frame of mind tend to be the, the people that are like me. And I, you know, that's, that's clearly dangerous because the people that are like me are the ones probably least likely to hurt me. I mean, we're working together every day. We're, we're on the, we're on the jobs, common vision, that type of thing. The people who need my respect the most, uh, in my opinion, are the most challenging members of society. The people who are, uh, are our clients, the people that we serve, uh, 
out there every day that are, uh, you know, they're not in a good place. Uh, you know, they, they have all kinds of challenges. And here's the thing, Jess, and I try to get officers to understand this. Most of the folks we serve, uh, they have challenges and burdens that we couldn't possibly understand. We just couldn't possibly relate to. Even those of us that came from challenging backgrounds as children, that stuff's so far in the rear view. Uh, and it was at such a different time that, that it doesn't provide a clear insight into the challenges of, of today's uh, people uh, that you contact. And, 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 and the, certainly the, the criminals that we deal with, most of them, most of them, uh, and their minds have good reason for the thing that they, things that they do. They're not all evil people. I mean, that's like, uh, you know, that, that's certainly a narrative that's out there. But I mean, if we all sit back and reflect uh, long enough, we could remember a time in our life where we did things that, that we regret and that we weren't proud of and, and possibly even things that were illegal that we just didn't get called on. Uh, and with that type of uh, outlook, uh, at looking, uh, looking that way at people, it provides much more clarity. And I, I tell you what, it reduces the stress of the job. My job, uh, our job as law enforcement, isn't to judge your character. Our job is to address your behavior. And if we're doing that, uh, we're doing our job. Well, and I think about the innovative advantage, you know, in these years that we've been hanging out, the, the different ways that you've, you've expressed that this approach has worked for you, right? Right off the bat, I'm thinking, you know, other human beings are like a mirror. Whatever they see us do is an invitation for them to do likewise. You know, it's almost like we're, as we marionette our own decisions, it's, it's semi-marionetting their decisions, right? And like, how easy is it? to have somebody show up who might be armed, big, tough guy. You know, I, I know the guys in your team within the 100 pull-up club, right? Yeah, and yeah. these guys are respectful. Doesn't it, it, doesn't it just massively increase the probability of inviting the other person to want to interact in a respectful way? Well, that's been my experience, Jess. And, you know, there are people out there. Uh, I recently heard an interview with a uh, with, with, uh, who was introduced. The gentleman was introduced as an expert. I don't, I don't know his credentials. Um, uh, particularly in this area. But this interview, uh, and this is a recent interview, um, this particular, uh, I'll call him an expert, uh, was actually proposing to law enforcement that we should not smile at people. <laughs> and his, uh, his thesis was that smiling will get you killed. And, and so what he was, what he was referencing uh, was the very thing you're referencing, only in what I would consider, all due respect to the, to the speaker, uh, and his expertise, but what I would consider a convoluted way. He was saying, look, when, when a police officer smiles at somebody, and now I'm paraphrasing, uh, but when a police officer smiles at somebody, they create an incongruency in the expectations for that contact on the part of the subject. And when the police officer smiles and creates that incongruency, they actually increase the stress level, which increases the likelihood of a violent encounter. Now look, I mean, it sounds like follow. an interesting theory. What, what's your experience <laughs> in real life? Well, so my point, and, and I, I, and again, all due respect to the speaker, I don't find it particularly interesting. Like, like you know, I, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even call it a theory. Uh, you know, <laughs> I think that's giving it, it, too, it too much, it's too much credit. Now he's well intentioned by all means. This person is is passionate and and is trying to obviously help us here. Uh, but but no, Lord Almighty, I have had oh millions. I don't know, not probably not millions, probably exaggerating. Certainly thousands and thousands of contacts with people in stressful events. And uh, I find 
the best way to deal with them is to be responsive to them in the moment. There's no script here. Uh, sometimes I might smile and sometimes I might not. It depends on the context of the event <laughs> and what that person might need. Jess, I'm not afraid to say as a, as a, as a career SWAT guy, I've hugged people before. <laughs> That's exactly like that. what I'm laughing about. I was yeah, telling exactly. my wife literally this week about uh, your, your one story with the woman at the police tape who, who was having a moment <laughs> and you yeah. asked her if she was a hugger. Yeah. I, I actually I want to cover that story maybe if you if you'll retell that story. Um before we get to it though, I'm just thinking in general. This this approach that you and Jack wrote about that that you lead with to me it it really has implications in in innovation in in you know marketing, working with people, attracting people and obviously leading your own teams. Um I think about all your stories with uh how serious you take the actions that you guys are involved in and what the second and third order effects will be and, and the, the officers that have to come to this neighborhood after you guys, um, the, either the stink eye that they're going to get or not, depending on how you guys conduct yourselves. And, and uh, you, know, we're, you know, the story about the, the dogs, I think, is, is worth bringing up and these different approaches. Um, but, you know, maybe to mix things up a little bit, going to the leadership side of things, um, you know, you, you, for this decade, you ran with a bunch of meat eaters. Um, tell me about helping the, uh, the guys on your team want to adopt this mindset. Yeah. So, well, that's a great, that's a, that was a great experience by the way. And, and I certainly learned much more from them than they ever learned from me. Uh, and I, and I mean that with, uh, with true humility. Uh, these were some amazing men that I worked around. Um, they just, uh, just fascinating people. Uh, loving, high character, tougher than woodpecker lips people. I mean, these were really good people. And, and so the, uh, you know, the, the switch in our philosophy and our way of, of, of seeing uh, people, uh, it really happened uh, you know, around us just looking critically uh, at, at what we were doing. And, and, the, and as you said, the second and third order effects of what we were doing. Um, and, and, and then talking about the difference between feeling safe and actually being comprehensively safe. You know, what would what, what, what that look like? Like, here's the reality, and we talked about this in our team early on. Uh, we're outnumbered thousands to one, uh, police to citizens. I mean, thousands to one. If everyone in Kansas City, Missouri tomorrow stood up and said, well, we're not going to obey the law, uh, we would become passive observers to chaos. We would have no way of controlling uh, the situation and, and, and what would follow. We rely, and I mean deeply rely, on people's cooperation, their willing cooperation with what we're trying to achieve. Now, uh, in the same vein, we take it for granted. Uh, we tend to ignore and marginalize the people who just follow the rules uh, when those are the people we should be working with uh, the deepest and, 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 and the most, making the most direct effort toward uh, relationship building. Uh, but, but saying that, uh, we, as we consider this as a team, we thought, surely, uh, it's true in families. Surely it's true in communities that people will judge your efficacy based on how you treat the most challenging members of the community. And uh, the most challenging members are the people most in need of police service. Uh, and, and so we, we just started thinking, okay, uh, the, the question that, and, and I, I've, I've said this before, the question that really started it all was a team member saying, look, what would it feel like to be policed by people like us? So what he did was he invited us to adopt the perspective of the client. 
And um, and I understand there are people out there in the law enforcement world that hate the the word client, uh, you know, they hate that or customer, uh, you know. So my my the way that I think about it is, look, we're we're providing a service, uh, much like you would get if you were go to go to a, any any corporate uh, entity, uh, but our but our but our but our product, if you will, our product is a is service. That's our product. It's an intangible. Hmm. So these people are actually consumers of our product. We're serving them, even if we're arresting them. Yeah. And with that with that frame of mind, it just makes it, it it makes the job, you know, so much easier to understand, you know, and and so much uh, it actually promotes this, this respectful way of thinking. But um, we we started so I so how did I start this? Well, I started it the wrong way. I started it by sitting the team down and saying, "Listen, guys, I really think with these, these things in mind, we need to respect people." Like that was that was the kind of how I rolled that out, right? And uh, you know, uh, well. As you can imagine. Instant adoption. Everyone was like, you're right, boss. I'm going to completely change. Yeah. No. Yeah. Done. Right. Like, oh, no one's ever said it to me like that before, Chip. Now, that makes sense. Yeah. No, that's not how that works. Right. So I had a team member come to me, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and two of them actually it was Andy Kyle. And Andy Kyle is, is a hero of mine, hero of mine. He's given me so many courageous corrections. Uh, and then another team member, Owen Ferris. And now both of these guys had served at different times as the assistant team leader. And uh, they both they both came to me at different times. This this tells you about their character. They came to me at different times uh, following this initial kind of conversation uh, with the team. Uh, and they came to me uh, closed door and said, "Listen, uh, listen, boss. If you want people to adopt this way of thinking, uh, don't tell them what to do. Just do it. You do it. You show them <laughs> what you want." And then when you do that, they're going to understand clearly the expectation. And, and so that, that's what Owen brought to me, right? And then what, what Andy brought to me uh, on top of that uh, was, listen, and, and what about internally? He says, listen, what about internally, boss? Like if we're, in, if we're mistreating our people within the organization, if we're refusing to respect their personhood, uh, what do we expect them to do out in the community? Like we're talking about, uh, you know, values uh, that, that we're projecting out, uh, mission statements of, and all these things for the community, but we're not operationalizing them within our own organization. So you see the message, right? So the idea would be, look, the people are our most important asset. That's the narrative. But yet we've got parking spaces reserved for the highest ranking members that quite frankly do the least amount of work toward the basic mission. So the explicit message is my people are the most important asset we have. But the implicit message, which I find to be much more powerful, is uh, you got to walk the farthest to get out of the rain. <laughs> and man, I'm telling you what, just that blew me away, uh, that kind of insight. And it changed drastically my approach to leadership. Well, and so I began immediately uh, implementing this within the organization and considering the challenges, burdens, the things that my p- people were facing and, wor- and structuring my work in a way, as we say in Arbinger, uh, structuring my work in a way that was considered what they were trying to achieve. And that invited them to start doing it with the community. And the behavior modeling, for any leader listening out there, uh, you've heard so much about behavior modeling. Uh, I, I can't tell you the, uh, the quantum impact that has toward your goals. Uh, just when people feel appreciated and, and regarded, genuinely appreciated and regarded, when they see you as authentic in your approach to them, uh, they, they will move mountains to get things done. And they won't do it because they're scared of you. They won't do it to avoid the stick. They'll do it because they don't want to let you down because they think that much of you and, and, and you demonstrate how much you care for them. 
Well, I feel like there's a lot in there. And, um, you know, uh, you, you talk about that, um, the kind of loyalty and the kind of like a team actually being a team. You know, I think in corporate America, a lot of groups of individuals get put together and get the label of a team that, that maybe don't row in the same direction. Um, and, uh, you know, you brought up Arbinger, obviously a great, great organization. We know each other through. We just had a managing partner, Mitch Warner, on the show. He did a great job. Um, and we'll, we'll see if, we, if Arbinger's got any of their videos with, with you guys that can be posted on your page here on Ideation Collective. Anybody who's walking the dog or in the gym or commuting listening to this, we'll, we'll put videos of Chip up on his page on ideationcollective.com. But... Um, now, why, why would you threaten them like that? <laughs> right? Now, yeah. tell me this. So you talk, let's talk about the difference. By the way, we're going to put your TED Talk up. Great TED Talk. Um, the response has been uh, really positive um, from, from what I understand. Uh, how, what was, well, let's stop there for just one second. What was that experience like going and doing a TED Talk? Well, wow. I'm, I'm sorry. You, I'm sorry you asked that because that is that remains uh, in in my mind. And I'm not. Now, don't take this the wrong way. I'm not an overly self-critical person. I mean, I I, I just speak from the heart. You know, I don't think there's nothing scripted about me. Uh, but I really uh, I really feel like I let the message down on the TED Talk because <laughs> I'd never done anything like that. And uh, and I I grossly underestimated what that was like in my preparation. And I thought in my mind for some reason that I'd be uh, doing uh, like a facilitation type discussion. What I typically do with facilitation is I work with groups and we, we, we talk kind of like you and I are talking uh, extemporaneously. Um, and, and it, it tends to work well, at least, at least I, I feel like it does. I get good feedback, but I had no idea, Jess, uh, and this is all I'll say about the format. I had no idea of how stressful that would be. And it comes out in the talk. I mean, it's strikingly obvious <laughs> to me. Like, well, you know, cause like I talked to my, my dearest uh, Shelly, uh, you know, I called her from the balcony of this place and I said, Hey, look, I'm out of my league here. Like I shouldn't even be here. Like we've got people here that, Oh my Lord, we got the four star general that led the army speaking after me. Uh, I go, I, I just, I'm out of my league. I, this is such a rare moment for me. I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm frankly, you know what? Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to stop you there. Cause this is something we ask a lot. You know, it seems like at any given point, most entrepreneurs need either a little more humility or a little more confidence. You know, the teeter totter is sure. not flat very often. And this yeah. is actually a great one to ask because, you know, in our years of hanging out together, I think that uh, typically you've, you've got the confidence thing down. Um, and, but here's a scenario where, where you didn't. Tell us um, any things you told yourself or how you got, you know, how you got it together and got up on stage when you are having this self-talk that is yeah. <laughs> encourage, you know, inviting you to discount yourself. Boy, I, I, wish I, had a, I wish I had a great, I wish I could take credit for this. The honest truth is this, and this this could be a lesson to anybody listening. Um, uh, it, I can't take credit for that. Uh, my, my my dearest did that. I talked to her on the phone, and uh, she knew something was wrong. And she said, "Listen, honey," she says, "You." Uh, that's what she calls me, is honey. Uh, she says, uh, "You you you are there because you deserve to be there, and you are telling a story that only you can tell." Mm. She says, "Run across the street and get some note cards," and she goes, "Just write down your ideas, your thoughts, uh, so that you don't lose your place." I know you won't be able to see the audience with the lights in your eyes, and it'll be weird. But she was tell your story, and don't worry about the clock. You'll be fine. Tell your story. And she talked me, Jess. She was my coach through this thing. Like this woman is, uh, well, and, and and she's amazing in every way. But I mean, she uh, she was my coach through this. She coached me through this. The lesson out of that is this: 
we need people in our circle that we can leverage in times like that. We don't have the uh, the humility that a leader needs to realize that we don't have every answer for every situation. Uh, you know, the humility I had to listen to her. I remember when she said, get the note cards. I said, I've never used note cards. She goes, trust me. So I get the note cards and they're out of order, by the way, when I get up there. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it ends up. So as I watch the talk, the cool experience, uh, I, I feel like I did get the story out. It was I'm clearly nervous and I'm clearly uh, uh, you know, there's some things I would I would like to do better if I had that to do over. And, uh, you know, I don't know if they'll ever have me back, but <laughs> but but I uh, but I definitely, uh, you know, the story got out there. But I have to tell you, I leaned on her so much. And uh, she's such an amazing person. She was able to get me through that. And we all have people like that in our lives. Uh, we all do. And I'm just fortunate enough to have her as a partner. Uh, but, but you know, we have people like that at work and in our friendships. Certainly you and I over the years uh, and the things we've talked about. And, uh, and, oh, my God, we just had a great conversation the other day. Uh, you make me think about things. And, and you force me to stretch the bounds of my, of my mindset. Uh, and, and that's well, the... People like you, Jess, people uh, like her that are in my life, I, I, I rely on them so much, man, uh, to, to get things done. I think, I think there's a couple of important principles there that, that are worth reiterating. So one, talk to somebody who understands what you're like when, when the teeter-totter is even, right? Like talk to somebody who can give you a reality check about, hey, hey, listen, this is not the real you. You, you, got, you got your teeter-totter all sideways and you're way down, Right. Oh, yeah. um, who who can speak from authority, right? It's not just sunshine and uh, puppies and roses, you know. But I mean, it's like <laughs> legit, right? Um, yeah. But I think the other thing there is is her message of how about some radical self honesty about, you know, let's face it, like you are the expert on your story. Like, sure, you're not a four star general, but you know, I'm pretty sure you're not here to tell his story. Pretty sure you're here to yeah. tell your story, and and. You know, I feel like so often people get bad advice about confidence. They get advice, hey, your teeter-totter is, your side of the teeter-totter is way down. Here, do this. Pretend that your side of the teeter-totter is way up. Pretend that you're better than everybody. And I yeah. feel like it's terrible advice because you go from one lie to the other versus yeah. this, this straightforwardness, this idea of, hey, let's be super self-honest, you know, about you and what you have done and just stick to that. Don't, don't be more and don't pretend to be less. Um, yeah, and it, well, well, here's and here's let me let me say this too, Jess. Here's the insidious thing, uh, the insidious thing, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll we'll harken back to, to to the TED talk, and then we'll uh, we'll we'll leave that. But but here's the insidious thing about that. Uh, the things you're saying are absolutely on. I mean, they're there and they're obvious. But the thing that we don't see is my main problem was what my main problem was. I quit for a for a time there. I quit focusing on the audience mm-hmm. and the message, and I started focusing on myself. I started focusing on being seen as a competent presenter. Mm-hmm. I started focusing on my image and how I looked. And once I started doing that, I couldn't focus on the message and the mission. Like, I couldn't do it. You yeah. can't focus on mission and self at the same time. And, mm. uh, and that was something, oh, man, that was something so powerful. And, you know, the ironic part is, now, I've, I've talked about this concept before, but here I am in the middle of it. You know, I, I'm in the fray. And I'm not remembering it. It's so easy to start focusing on self. And when I'm thinking, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, people are going to think that I'm, uh, I'm not a good presenter. Uh, you know, wow. Well, so what? You know what I mean? <laughs> like at the end of the day, it, it, this isn't about me. You know, people are always going to find a reason to critique you. It's always going to find a reason to, to, to uh, you know, 
to, to pick at things that you do or don't do uh, properly or as they think they should be done. Uh, look, I've never given a perfect interview or a perfect presentation. So why do I put that pressure on myself? Like it's never going to happen. Yeah. Uh, instead, let's, well, let's just start with heart. Let's just talk about the things that we're deeply passionate about and the things that we think can be helpful to others. If I can stay focused on others, in this case, the audience and the talk, I don't have a problem. But to the degree I focus on myself, oh yeah, that that that, that brings all kinds of psychological baggage uh, on, on board and it makes the, the trip so much rougher. And that's something that was happening with me that I didn't see until uh, Shelly was able to help uh, help leverage me out of that. Well, so this is this is great stuff. And the thing about it is I think that a lot of the leaders or innovators who are listening to this could probably quote a bunch of that stuff. You know, like from an intellectual standpoint, there's a lot of us that have heard this message before. Something I want to talk about is like the difference between knowing how to do the correct push-up and how to get yourself out of bed at 5 a.m. to do said push-up. Hmm. Um, you know, so you think about this transformation from, you know, the way you told me about, you know, back when you were on, um, what was the, t- the TV show's Kansas City SWAT? Is, what, what was that? Uh, what channel is that on? Uh, actually, that that was produced by A and E. Okay, uh, by A and E, that was their product. So, the way you've described to me the the shift in who you chose to become as a leader from the time back from those days to the time doing the TED Talk, um, what advice do you have for those of us who are maybe ambitious or or trying to get something big done, and you know, quite frankly, have some skill sets that the world is highly rewarding. And so if we wanted to believe we're special, there's probably a bunch of proof out there for it. Mm-hmm. Um, what did, you know, having like paid the price and, and repeatedly worked on yourself and worked on yourself and worked on yourself to, to habitually have this mindset become your default mindset, what advice would you have for the rest of us that, that want to follow that path? Well, well I'd say uh, first off, look outside yourself. You know, um, I, I've done a lot of, um, i I think you can really make a pretty good assessment of someone by who they associate with. And uh, if, it, it, you know, my, my, my circle of friends has grown and they are amazing people. They are inspirational to me. Uh, they've accomplished things, uh, you know, not only in their personal or professional lives, but also in their personal lives. Great family people, uh, you know, uh, great business people. Uh, those those people, when as, I, as I'm associating with them, they literally inspire me to be better. And then, and then externally, I'm reading about great leaders who've accomplished great things and, and looking for the common threads. And, and so, I, I mean, it's inspirational to me to read uh, to read Victor Frankel. You know, I read Man's Search for Meaning like three times, uh, cover to cover. Uh, it's not by any means a huge book, and um, and I'm just amazed by by the ability he had to put this out there in a way that was very practical and very easy to understand. Some of these deep philosophical concepts, right? And then, so, you know, I go from Frankel to, I read American Icon. And for anybody listening, uh, American Icon, uh, you know, is a story of Ford's turnaround under under the guidance, under the leadership of Alan Mulally, uh, who came from Boeing. Uh, What a great guy, man. I think about Alan Mulally, and I I don't know Alan Mulally personally, but I'd like to. Like just based on how he's how his leadership style, and now look at his success. He turns Boeing around with this kind of mindset. 
he turns Ford around with this kind of mindset? I mean, these aren't like small companies. These aren't like, you know, easy things to do. Uh, it's like running a small country when you're dealing with a company that size. And he was able to do it using the same humble, self-effacing type of approach that you and I are discussing. So so what is that? And I love it. And I, I actually feel like you've hit on the number one thing that that has motivated me is experiencing what it's like vicariously for those people and and like having that internal desire to be more like that and for me that's especially an anchor of like i see these people who have they've mastered themselves they've conquered themselves so much that it's like huge inspiration huge inspiration for me to want to do the same um what does that look like day to day for you though how, how are you taking the look in the mirror what what, what's like a granular something that people can do this afternoon that could become, you know, more of a habit for how how to be speed checking themselves? Well, so first off, it, it, it doesn't start with looking in the mirror, Jess. It starts looking outward. And uh, and, and so it, it's the way that you consider the people you interact with. Mm. So so, for instance, one way that I find to be very helpful is to become very curious about people. Just really asking myself, what's driving this person? Uh, what are they trying to accomplish? What are the things that mean something to them? What are the things that keep up uh, up at night? Uh, and when I see things like that don't make sense uh, to me, that don't line up with what the, the things that I think uh, are appropriate, I ask myself, instead of making a judgment of that person and trying to author a narrative in my mind as to why they're acting that way, uh, and typically the narrative is very short. It sounds something like, well, he's a jerk. Um, instead, I start asking questions like, why would a reasonable person behave that way. And when I start asking those questions and getting curious, uh, it changes the way that I look at them. I can't be, and there's research around this, by the way. Uh, uh, there's a man named Lawrence Gonzalez, an author. He, he wrote, a, uh, wrote a couple of books that I highly recommend. One is Deep Survival, and the second one is Surviving Survival. And in that Surviving Survival book, uh, he talks about uh, the science behind uh, the notion that you cannot be curious and angry at the same time. <laughs> now, angry, angry, anger is a form of judgments. Uh, you know, we know that, right? Anger is just judgment uh, wearing a different kind of mask. So I can't be judging people if I'm curious about them. I can't, I can't work those two things at the same time. Now, there comes a time after deliberation where you have to make a call. As a leader, you can't be on the fence. The biggest thing with the, the, that I try to get across to people is we're not talking here about soft, passive, permissive, uh, you know, letting people run over you. No, no. Oh, oh, my God. Just the opposite. Like if you're truly respectful of people, you won't let them languish in mediocrity. You'll, you'll prepare, equip, and train them to hold themselves accountable. Uh, you know, that's what you'll be doing. And, and, and you'll do it. You'll hold them accountable at the shallow end of the misconduct pool. You won't even let them drift out to the deep end. Like you'll hold them accountable for the small stuff so they don't get to the big stuff. Um, so as a daily practice, I surround myself with a team, with a leadership team that buys into this philosophy. And we create systems of accountability around these things, around the things that matter most. And those systems of accountability are simply uh, maybe the best analogy I could give as just extemporaneously would be the analogy of a buddy check in the airborne culture uh, in the Army. Uh, so look, in the, in, in, in the Army, uh, in the airborne culture, you're going to jump out of a plane, uh, typically on a static line. 
uh, you're on the same uh, static line, you're hooked up, you are your gear to the same line that the rest of the stack is hooked up to. And because your equipment is on your back, uh, you're blind to it. Most of your equipment's on your back, you're blind to it, you can't see it. If there's a problem with it or a snag or a malfunction, you won't be able to see it. So what you do is you have your uh, buddy in line check your gear. There's things that he's going to be able to see or she's going to be able to see there that you can't see. Uh, and then you check theirs. Okay, so let's extend that metaphor. Um, there are blind spots in your morality, in your daily yeah. way of operating that you can't see because you're blinded by your justifications. You're blinded by your own agenda. But I guarantee you, people around you see them just like you see theirs. And, and we need to, to, to like shred this curtain of silence and just speak to each other about it. Like say, look, I can tell you, I get a buddy check about every day. Uh, the reason I had Andy Kyle with me uh, so close for all those years is that he was the guy that would not hesitate to say, hey boss, have you considered this? Or hey boss, you know, you just did this. You ever think about how that might be perceived? And uh, <laughs> man, that's the key. Those day-to-day day, day, -to -day implementation requires a system of accountability around you to compensate for the fact that you're not perfect. How many people run around trying to be perfect? Or they mm -hmm. run around assuming they're perfect and don't take feedback? Yeah. Uh, or, well, and or, I, don't think, I don't think that people would label it that way because there's a, a cultural thing to say, well, I know I'm not perfect, but – and then they pretty much follow up with, but I'm pretty darn close. Uh, yeah, I, right, right, I feel right. like, I'm, but I'm not doing that bad. Uh, I feel like I'm actually really glad that you brought up this word curiosity. As I think about kind of why, why I've come to you to mentor me over the years and these different things, I feel like you're, it's, it's funny. I have never thought about it, this curiosity. I do feel like is it a root of so many of the things that you've opened up for me. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, like, I don't doubt it's the reason that you get hired so much as an expert witness, all these lawyers who want you to come around and testify about use of force cases that I know you're subject matter expert on or, or your consulting firm, which of course we'll put, you know, the contact info on the, on the site for anybody who wants to hire you. But I'm thinking about this curiosity thing, you know, and you know, when, when you came with me and we went and taught those Navy SEALs for the first time and what fast friendships you made with these guys who you know, let's face it, they're other, they're other meat eaters and it's pretty easy for guys to, to be like, oh, maybe, you know, to do the, well, who's tougher in the room kind of thing, right? Sure, and sure. you're amazingly curious and I know that you're still friends with those guys. Uh, we both are. And I'm thinking about the, the one individual when he and I went over to Nigeria to teach the Nigerian Special Operations Command and he's, he's telling his stories about Iraq and when this mindset helped them be smarter and safer and, and I just quoted a whole bunch of your stories. But I'm thinking about this curiosity thing. Uh, uh, one of the things that I taught 300 individuals at, at uh, Nigerian Special Operations Command, uh, quoting you, was your thing about curiosity of uh, versus anger. And by the way, just as a tangent, uh, our conversation from earlier this week um, and that uh, that paper, Anger and Similar Delusions by Terry Warner, you know, the book uh, – the Oxford paper as well to put a link on it for people that really want to dive into this. But I, I was over there teaching about your concept of like anger versus curiosity, openness, seeing things, you know, see actually seeing humans instead of seeing problems. And I just remember this thing that's like burned into me from, of you talking about um, when you're angry, 
that you hyper-focus and you get auditory exclusion. I remember you tell me stories about not hearing a shotgun blast that went off right beside your ear. Versus when you're curious and when you see the other person as a full person and you haven't discounted them because you're angry at them, that all of a sudden the the angles of opportunity start oper- opening up. And like the possibilities to innovate a way out of this problem change so much when you're not just labeling the other guy, you know, you're, when you're t- referring to them as a client, as a person, instead of as a dirtbag or some racial slur or whatever, right? That all of a sudden, all these other possibilities open up and that it's like a massive benefit to to both accomplishment of mission, but also safety and survivability of, of your team and the people who are with you. Um, okay, so I want to I wanna have everybody hear a story about this. I... <clears throat> And I hope it's okay to tell the story, but I remember being on the phone with you and you're, we're talking about dogs and, and the threat of, of your guys getting bit, uh, when, uh, when you're doing a high risk search warrant or something like this. And, um, you show me a YouTube video. Do you remember this? Do you remember this experience? No, uh, you're, you're, you're refreshing my memory. I remember the dog conversation. Okay. So you show me a YouTube video that somebody from the PR team at, at, at Kansas City, Missouri, police department to put out, uh, trying to put SWAT team in a good light, which, you know, military, uh, type of labels have being applied to police and, and all the controversy that's out there is, is gotta be a tough job for these PR folks with the media kind of working against you. And you show me this list of just vitriol. I mean, just swear laden, uh, highly emotional comments about you effing dog killers you know, just saying terrible things that they think should happen to you guys. And you say to me, you know, Jess, what did I, what did I do to deserve, to deserve this? And I'm thinking, yeah, Chip, you, you didn't do anything. What do you, what, what did you guys do to deserve this, this kind of hatred, whatever? And you're like, yeah. no, Jess, you're not following me. I'm not looking for an ally here. No, what did I do? <laughs> like what kernel? Of, I mean, yeah, they're emotionally out of control, but I mean, like literally Jess, is there anything in here that I actually need to own. And I'm thinking, oh, uh, uh, I don't know. What do, you, what do you mean? And you're like, listen, we shoot a lot of dogs, man. We, we can't, you can't have people getting rabies, right? And your question, well, I'm just going to let you tell a story. So from there, you went and sat your guys down and asked them a question. And, and I want to talk about, I, I'd love for people to hear this story of what curiosity turned into for you guys. Yeah, that's, that's great. So well, listen, I, I credit Billy Von Wolf. Uh, another assistant team leader, uh, with asking that question uh, based on conversations he and I had had after you and I had talked. I think Billy was the one, in my recollection, that posed it. And he said this. He said, what if we could kick in your house without shooting your dog? Would you want us to? This was a question he posed to the rest of the team. Now, most of these guys own pets. So, you know, it's not too too hard to imagine what they said. You know, it's kind of like, well, of course. Well, that question invited us to adopt the perspective of the people that we were serving warrants on. And we thought, listen, why would they feel any different about their pets? I mean, certainly some probably do. Uh, you know, like there's, there's a wide variety of the way, uh, there's a wide di- disparity in the way people view their pets. But in any study I've ever seen, it's around 90% of people, maybe higher, that consider their pets to be part of the family. Uh, certainly true for me. Uh, you know, I certainly feel that way. So we got to assume then that the, the, uh, at least that many that, that percentage of our clients feel the same way. And so that one question uh, got us to thinking in whole different ways. Just that one question. Uh, and we did so some things flowed out of that. Billy and I worked together 
uh, we invited a dog expert uh, to come in from the outside. We vetted this guy. Uh, you know, we didn't want somebody who was, you know, uh, who thought that all dogs were more important than people and that like the, the people should starve so dogs could survive. We didn't want one of those folks. Uh, no disrespect toward their viewpoint, but we weren't after that. And we certainly didn't want the, uh, well, you know what, uh, dogs don't dogs don't mean anything. Uh, they're just in the way, kill them, kill them all. We didn't, we didn't want a person like that, you see. We wanted someone who was, who was kind of moderate. And we found that guy, and his name was Anthony Barnett. And Anthony ran a pit bull rescue and uh, worked uh, on some cases, some dog fighting cases as a consultant for uh, attorney generals and things of that nature. And so we pull, we pull Anthony in. And what Anthony did was he just learned, like he did the quintessential Arbinger approach. You know, he went outside triangle on us, right, as we say in Arbinger. Uh, and and he, uh, he just learned about us and what we did and what we were trying to accomplish, rode with us, embedded with us. And then he designed training for us to help us learn about how aggressive dogs behave and what the difference between an excited dog and a dangerous dog was. And we implemented this training. And on the backside, uh, we had Billy researching uh, technology and in form of the Taser X2s. And the tasers we rolled out, these tasers are semi-automatic. They fire more than one cartridge without being reloaded. Uh, really amazing amazing tool for our purposes. And we employed those then as an alternative to shooting these dogs uh, in some situations. Uh, saying I'll have to say this, I think I've talked publicly about the results. And But what I tell you, I'll tell you something other people haven't heard publicly right now, uh, kind of a tidbit for you that I really don't typically bring up. Uh, when, when I initially... Uh, discussed our results uh, after implementing this 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 philosophy and this technology piece, like this new approach. Uh, we what I often say publicly is we reduced dog shootings on search warrants by eighty percent in the first year alone. Wow! So what I tell people is that's an eighty percent reduction in the number of dogs being shot on search warrant services. Now that's an amazing number, eighty percent, uh, considering we we were shooting, uh, you know. You know, well over 25, 30 dogs a year. I mean, you know, you know, I at least that high. Uh, sometimes it had been more uh, within the entire team. Uh, but let's consider this: uh, when I when I I, I wrote Billy up uh, for an award uh, for kind of being the brainchild behind this approach, and uh, when I did, I got called on the carpet about the 80% metric. They said, "Listen, that's a huge reduction. Uh, do you have any proof?" Like, are you just throwing that number out, or do you have any proof that 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 that's a, an accurate number? And it's a fair question from people who are critical of this, right? And I said, well, obviously, I, that's a conservative estimate on my part, uh, and, and it's rounded off. Uh, but 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 no, the only the, the only the proof would be in the reports. Like, let's go through and, and hand search all these discharge of firearm reports where dogs were shot. Let's go through and do all that, and then you know count it up. That's what I did at the time, and and I can tell you, I don't I don't have. Uh, I didn't take those records with me when I transferred. So we went back, we hand searched, we did this, we gave the numbers to the current commander. Uh, that commander calls me two weeks later. And no one's heard this before, but you. He says to me, uh, uh, Chip, you're, you were wrong in your <laughs> estimates. And he says, you were wrong in your estimates. You guys did not reduce your dog shootings by, by 80% in the first year. I said, well, that's that's uh, that's disappointing, but dude, I, I'm, I'm used to being wrong. Can you tell me then what was the actual number? He said 94 <laughs> percent. Yeah, that's what he said. And so now now I, I'm I'm telling you this because obviously it makes the story so much more convoluted to go through all that. Uh, and people don't like long stories. But but that that my, my friend uh, that that happened uh, when that commander called me. And I thought, wow, 
You know, we what an impact that we had, and the impact. Look, so that's just the direct impact, the measurable impact. What about the un, what about the impact you can't measure? What about the impact on? You can't prove a negative, but how many people walked away with a different taste in their mouth uh, about what we were doing, based at least in part on the fact that we spared their animal, that, that we spared their uh, their family member. You know, if you well, fall on that ninety percent of people who, who feel that way, and this is this is what I'm talking about on the curiosity side. You think every everybody who's running a company has problem clients, customers, or or uh, the issues come up on the staff, right? Um, and this curiosity about others when dealing with a hard situation, um, like I feel like everybody should, you know, I'm just thinking about how could this become a habit? How could people like incorporate this, you know, into daily thinking, but like whether they're putting card in their wallet or they're, they're setting an alarm on their phone or their computer to just ask themselves randomly throughout the week, what's this like for someone else? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think you got you got the answer right there in your question, Jess. I, I think you know I, whatever mnemonic you use uh, to to remind yourself, and perhaps a, a phone alert would be good. Maybe a phone alert set each day that says, "Go seek someone out when this goes off. Seek someone out and have a conversation with them with the intent to understand them deeply, not with the intent to tell them anything or the intent to share your perspective." You know, we we, we typically listen with the intent to respond. Like that's our default setting, you know, like uh, you're telling me something, I'm listening, 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 just waiting to tell you my, my, uh, my advice or whatever. So maybe an alarm is once a day, have a conversation like that with someone, maybe carve out 15 minutes to just listen deeply. And you can, you can practice this skill at home. Like uh, there's no more important place for it. Well, you're talking to a guy, uh, you're talking to a guy who destroyed a couple of marriages around not understanding these things. Like I, I just, I was a, a, uh, a patent. Uh, failure uh, and, and and destroyed a couple of relationships with with two pretty good women, uh, pretty good fine ladies that just I didn't get it, you know uh, I was blind to it and uh, well and, and I so, do yeah sorry I'm interrupting finish your thought no 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 go right ahead well it makes me think too of back to your buddy check system of intentionally seeking someone else out who can who you can do the buddy check with you know somebody who'll give it to you straight. They're not looking to roast you or hold your hand over the fire, but they're not going to, you know, sugarcoat it either kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. I, I remember uh, I remember when we had you come up and speak to the kids at, at Child Rescue, um, the, the youth program back here broadcast, and we'd had some issues at the conference, and I, I was coming to you for some advice. And um, one of the things that, that you said is um, – you said, and I think this applies to people who are trying to, who either are high achievers or, or have the ambition to become one. And, you know, maybe they're, the skill sets they're naturally born with are being rewarded. And, and uh, you said to me, you know, I think your problem, Jess, is that you're good at stuff and it's making you not very, <laughs> you know, specifically within this narrow skill set that we were talking about, right? And yeah. uh, I'm not sure you're really very patient with the people who didn't get the, the natural benefits that you got born with there. And mm -hmm. you talked to me about, you said, I can't, you can't believe how much I get done for how little I do these days because I, mm -hmm. I transferred from the business of being the guy to being in the business of leadership development. Mm -hmm. And, um, when you, when you think about this, um, and, and having people that you can have the honest conversations with, um, what advice do you have for someone? Cause 
you know, when some friend approaches you or, or even a sibling or somebody, you know, it's pretty easy to think, no, no, they mean, they mean, can you, can you like pretend to give me some advice, but mostly praise me? <laughs> what, what advice would you have for people picking a, a buddy check partner of, of helping them realize, you know, Hey, I don't want you to roast me, but I, I really want to find my blind spots. Oh, sure. Well, these conversations, and of course, I've had a few, you know, these conversations start out like this. Look, uh, as, as I talked to Andy, now, Andy was the guy I didn't have to invite. He just inserted himself into that role. Like, he, you know, he's a he's one of those courageous former Marines that he's not going to walk past a small mistake. I guarantee you that. Um, but like, so other people have invited us to things like this. I'm really interested in improving myself in this capacity, this leadership capacity. Like, that's what my goal is, improving myself. And I know in order to do that, I have to recognize the areas in which I'm deficient. Now, the problem is I can't see those areas very clearly because I have a tendency to be defensive about criticism. Uh, well, what I want to do now is I want to invite you to be a person uh, who cares enough for me to tell me, to give me the straight scoop, to come to me. And, and you can preface it if you want. You can have like we had we had, we use the language. Uh, you know, like maybe Andy would approach me and say, hey, Chip, I got to give you a buddy check. Do you have time for that? You know, and make sure we're in the right space for it mentally and, and physically hmm. and, and find, a, find a space we can sit down. And he says, you know, I need to give you a buddy check. And, and so when he told me that, when he used that term, I was like, OK, now I know what kind of conversation. He's just contexting this for me. I need to prepare myself for some criticism. Now, think about that. Prepare myself for some criticism. Criticism coming out of the blind, man, that's difficult to handle because our natural tendency, I think for at least most of us, is to be defensive, to say, to explain why. And what we have to do is we, we have to not think about the why. Like we have to let that go. Like, of course, we had a reason. Uh, we need to take the information the person has given us as relative. And because this is a prearranged agreement, uh, you know, like we've already agreed to it. Uh, we, we, I've invited him to do this. Uh, when I was thinking more with my logical brain, uh, this becomes so much easier. I mean, it almost sounds like, to some people, counterintuitive. It becomes very easy to operationalize. And, and over time, it becomes habitual. And you no longer have to set a reminder uh, to to talk to folks and to listen to folks. More importantly, it just becomes part of who you are. Now, caution, uh, you will never, in my opinion, ever free yourself from what Arbinger calls self-deception. Uh, you will never free yourself from the tendency to betray yourself. Like, that's never going to happen. It's a constant battle. You know, you don't go to the gym and exercise once and then stay in shape. You know, it's, it's a constant battle to stay committed to a regimen. And there's this is no different. Leadership is a strict discipline. And uh, being and accepting feedback is a discipline. And you have to discipline yourself. And you have to be patient with yourself. And uh, you can't beat yourself up. Uh, you know, you have to be really good at apologizing. Uh, because that you're going to make mistakes. And, uh, you know, now if I, if I invite you to uh, be that buddy that provides a buddy check for me, and then I shut you down every time you come to me, or I get defensive and critical, um, well, it won't be long before you're not going to be coming to me anymore. And you'll see that as just some type of a tactic that I was employing uh, with half measure, and it's going to lose its effectiveness. But, but I, I promise you, if, if, I can, if, I can, if I can incorporate this into my... Uh, into my regimen, my approach, anyone can. Like I, I was probably one of the most defensive people in the world because I was so concerned about being a good dad, so concerned about being a tough, strong, 
good leader. I was so concerned with doing those things or being seen that way that I wasn't doing the work. I spent all my time being concerned how people saw me and none of my time actually improving the way I was. And uh, man, what a man, what a tragedy, uh, you know, when you when you look at it that way. Um, so, yeah, my, my, my advice to folks is start small. Start with one relationship. Start with one relationship at work. Start with one relationship at home and work on that relationship and work on building that trust. And then once you have that, make that invitation. And you're gonna see, like no matter where you're at in your leadership abilities, you're gonna see a great improvement in your capacity to ethically inspire others to be their best selves. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's really gonna be an amazing transformation, I, I, I think, I can attest to that. Well, it was obviously a big benefit for me. You know, I'm thinking, um... I think one, one piece I would add to all of that is in selecting who, who you would do the buddy check with. You know, um, for me, it was such an advantage because I, I didn't question um, selfish motives on your part, right? Like, I didn't have any concern that you were telling me to, to take a step back because of what it was going to do for your life. Like, I, I had a lot of trust in your intentions when you were advising me. Um, and so I think people picking someone who is a safe person um, that can just give them the straight skinny without being involved in the situation themselves might be an advantage. You know, I I recently got asked to do something like this for a close family member. And it was actually um, kind of like an honor. Like you feel like it's like a compliment that they actually think that I care enough about them and that, and that they actually want to hear what I've got to say, you know. Um, but... Uh, you know, you're talking about how hard people are on themselves and being realistic about how long this is going to go on. I think about our mutual friend, Chris Wallace. Um, I remember going, becoming an Arbinger facilitator in his class back in, you know, a number of years ago and him saying, Hey, don't go home and set the stupid goal to be perfect. You're you're never going to accomplish it. You're just going to drive other people nuts. (laughs) Instead, go home and set a goal to change your ratio. Like, what percentage of the ratio are you, you have the inward mindset versus the outward mindset and, and set the goal to have a better ratio tomorrow and set the goal to have a better ratio every day. And that's like a realistic lifelong thing that I feel like was good advice for me. And I feel like that's kind of what you're getting at. Um, so I think this curiosity thing, um, you know, it'd be easy for somebody to listen to this interview today and, and to maybe go to that thing that you were talking about before about, Sometimes this stuff gets discounted as being soft or things like that. And I know for me, one of the examples you've set that, that I want to work more towards is your willingness to be curious about the hard questions too and just have like the courage to be uncomfortable to do what's right. Um, what do you think about sharing the story about uh, the individual from your team that saw the guy at uh, at the quick stop without his gun belt on. Yeah, no, I'll definitely share that with you real quick. Uh, well, one of my guys, uh, great guy, great guy, uh, Bob, he, uh, goes to, uh, the quick trip on the way to meet us at a warrant out in one of the suburbs, like, like a seven uh, 11 kind of place, right? Yeah. So yeah. So a quick trip, a uh, quick plug for quick trip, uh, love quick trip. Uh, yeah. Quick trip is kind of a, a, a company, uh, for those who aren't familiar in the Midwest, uh, primarily, but, uh, yeah, it'd be like what people would consider a seven 11, 
uh, certainly, but a great, what a great company. Um, so um, he stops by the, this quick trip uh, on his way to meet us, and he has an encounter with, with an officer there. And so he comes out to the uh, the warrant. We we conduct the operation, and and, and we're standing down, uh, waiting on the detectives to come on scene. And he starts telling me this, this story about his encounter. He says, "Look, you're not going to believe what I saw uh, when I went to the quick trip." I said, well, "What did you see?" He says, "Well, I saw this officer come in. Uh, you know, this young officer gets out of his personal car, and he's in full uniform, except he doesn't have his gun belt on. So he's in full police uniform with no weapons." And he walks into the quick trip, uh, sees me, says hi, gets a drink, pays for it, and leaves. And I said, wow. He says, what do you think about that? I said, well, what do you think about it? He says, well, look. He goes, uh, this guy's uh, clearly unsafe. He's in full uniform. He's a target for any bad guy that has bad intentions, uh, you know, uh, any subject that would want to attack him. And he's got no weapon. And what if he walks in there and the place is getting robbed? And you know, they're, they're gonna, he's going to be the first one they take out. You know, things can go really bad really fast if he doesn't have his equipment. He says, what do you think of that? And I said, yeah, I, I would tend to agree with you. I said, I'm curious, what did, he, uh, what did he say to you when you questioned him about it? <laughs> right? And Bob, so Bob looks at me like I got like two heads, right? He's staring at me like, um, dang, boss, uh, maybe you misunderstood me. I, I wanted to talk about him, not to him. Like that what I was after, right? And uh, – I said, well, he says, well, I didn't say anything to him. I said, well, well, let's think about that for a minute. Here you are, this squared away tactical guy, one of the best tactical guys in the department. And you come in uh, and, and, and you see this guy, and this guy sees you, and he knows you see him, and he's not wearing his, his proper equipment, and you see this, and he knows you see this, right? Uh, and you don't say anything. I said, what kind of message do you think that sent to him? And he kind of mulls us over, and he says, well, it probably – made him think it was okay to do it. And I said, yeah, I think so. I said, I think you, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln had a term for this. He called it sinning by silence. And he, he said that at one point that it makes cowards of men. And uh, I said, you know, I think you owe it to that person and to the department and the people he serves to have a courageous conversation with him around, uh, around wearing his equipment. I said, now be ready for defensiveness, be ready for pushback. But I think you're going to find that uh, if approached the right way, if you can separate the person from the problem, be hard on the problem, soft on the person, you're going to find that he's going to be very receptive. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the story, as the story goes, Bob did reach out. And the person did have, the, the, the officer did have a couple of excuses, but uh, the officer was extremely thankful, uh, saw Bob's well-articulated points, and committed to never doing that again. And I told Bob, I said, look, there's a lesson there. Uh, it's not just about the tactical piece. Like, you've made this officer safer and more aware. Uh, you know, remember, he wasn't doing this because he was maniacal. It just wasn't on his radar as being important. And now you've put it on his radar. I said, but the other thing is you've demonstrated to him that he was in the presence of a man with character. I said, and that message is invaluable, and it travels with you wherever you go. He's going to tell people about that, about you. And he's going to remember that about you for the rest of his uh, rest of his life, and that's a powerful message. And uh, you know, I, I uh, it was a learning experience for both of us, to be honest. To be honest with you, uh, Bob Bob taught me as much as I taught him in that. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it for today. I really appreciate everything you've shared with us. No, uh, Jess, and I I am I am uh, sincerely sincerely humbled. Uh, not only by our friendship, but by the fact that you would invite me on 
to to share some of these things. And I, I want to leave you with, uh, with with just just three things. Uh, yeah. One, uh, the Navy SEALs are definitely tougher than me. <laughs> uh, I, I want to go on record as saying that. Uh, at least all the ones I know are. Um, and then uh, uh, two, uh, I, I have to credit Arbinger, as you know, I always do. Uh, Arbinger, the Arbinger Institute, uh, the way the, the way they have informed my thinking and the way they have helped me uh, over the years, not just personally or professionally, but personally, uh, I, I, I don't think I could ever repay that debt uh, to, to the people that, uh, that that make up uh, that organization, and they they've become dear friends. And then, and then, and then, lastly, I want to say this: we talked a lot today about humility. Uh, I want to caution people: uh, it has to be genuine, authentic humility. False humility uh, that exists. Things like you know, uh, you know, well, I'm not. I know I'm not perfect, as you said, like those colloquial statements. Um, but false humility is is to me just a way of avoiding responsibility. It's just a way of you know another way of shirking your responsibilities. And uh, false humility is is really counterproductive. It's a punitive counterfeit of humility. It's punishing, and it's fake. And, uh, you know, it does more damage than good. So I want to encourage people out there to search deep within themselves to really look at themselves and find true humility that I know it's almost it's not a natural thing for us to do, to look at ourselves critically. Uh, It's not a natural thing. But, man, I tell you what, we can be so much more productive in the things we're trying to accomplish when we think of ourselves less. And we think of others more, um, and so I want to I want to encourage people to uh, to think about that to just avoid that false humility. It's not enough just to say it; you got to walk your talk, and it does take a lot of effort, uh, a lot of effort to to do to think of yourself less. And, and I I just uh, I really appreciate again the opportunity, Jess. That's great. Thanks again, my friend, and uh, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks everybody for listening. And that's the show. Thanks for listening today. Again, if you're interested in the bonus materials that we will be producing, make sure to come to our website and join the Ideation Collective while it's still free. The website, iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. And as always, if you want to learn more about getting involved in helping the team rescue kids from traffickers, please visit iCollective.co slash child rescue. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara. Cold cut combo. Veggie delight. Or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.